Well, there are different types of books that are really poorly made. You know, they fall apart or it's cheap. And then there are some books that are just tremendous. It's like an amazing production. And I've, I've bought both, and I adore books that are well-made. In my office, I've got two particular bookshelves that are filled with books produced by one publisher. It seems like any time this publisher comes out with a new book, I will buy it, and I will show it off to anyone who can handle it. Uh, first, because of the content that's inside the books, but also, it's amazing that the amount of art and design and desire that goes into really good books, the, the sewn binding, the, the type of pages, the clear intentional choice of paper and design, uh, the typeface, the fonts, the, the mesmerizing layouts often overlooked in the inside cover. And I get pumped when I show this to people, and truly no one cares. Uh, but what I want to show them is that what, what is being held here or seen here is, is way more than just words on a page. It's way more than just a book. It's a, it's a quantifiable, and I know this is where you guys are like, that guy doesn't have any friends. It's a quantifiable moment of adventure beyond the physical. There is also not only an understanding of what makes a good book, but there is also a right way to open a book. Probably didn't know that. There is a particular way to wear it in even before you read it. Like, like you might receive a new baseball glove. You oil it. You put a baseball inside it. You wrap rubber bands around it for a month, and so it's formed to your particular ownership. Books, too. And there's a right way to start a book. You start with the title and the subtitle. You think about the author. Then you turn it over and you examine the back. You read the endorsements. You want to know what you're getting into. Then you, then you turn to the inside flaps and see more information about the book's author. Then you open to the first page. That was intentionally designed for your consumption. There's more information there. Then you finally turn to the table of contents. How many chapters? How are they divided? Is there space between the, the chapter and the page number? Is it dotted? Is it dashed? Is it left blank? Like some psychopath publishers do. <laughs> you see the flow or the lack of flow intentionally given to you by the author's chapters. Then you turn to the forward or maybe an introduction. Is it a storied intro or is it a survey of where the book is going to go? Then you go to the ending. You, you read the ending before you read the middle. You, does it have an epilogue? Does it have a finish? Is it part of a series? Did the author give you limits and guides for your own reading? And then you finally start in the beginning. Guys, the, the art of getting, receiving, starting, reading, and finishing a book is truly more than you and I ever make it out to be. You would be insane if you grabbed a book, heard it was interesting, turned to a random page, 73, and you just started. You won't get it. You won't understand what the book is trying to do. You'll miss the weight of the end. You'll also miss the argument of the author. Lecture over. Uh, now, I bet any of you who've read ahead in Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, you've, you've maybe read a couple of verses into it, and then you naturally go, yeah, I, I don't care. Uh, the flood was cool. Let's get on to the next amazing part. You look at it, and you're like, my goodness, what is happening here? Names, places, more names, more places, more people. I got it. A lot of people. They live. They died. Let's move on. But I think we have to approach this in the same way that we have to approach a majestic book. What is being shown to us at the beginning of 1,500 pages? I think it's helpful for you to see chapter 10 like a map, like a map that Moses gives you, where the, where the Spirit intentionally inspired this section of Scripture 
to be given to us. And Moses had it in his mind that the particular people who would have first received this and us today would have needed what is called this table of nations. This table of, you'll be tempted to think, useless information. So how do we approach this? You've just been given a map by God for your own consumption. How do you do this? So here's what I'm going to do for the next several minutes is I want to explain how you and I can use this map not only in the next couple of pages, but also for the rest of our life. First, I want to, I've got three points. So if you use your notes provided for you on the back of the bulletin, there, there are no notes or headings, but I'll give you three points. The last one you'll need the most space for. You're going to write this down. But first, I'm going to talk about how you can realistically understand all of this stuff on a page. Second, I want to, I want to show you how you can practically use this map for yourself. And then third, I want to show you theologically of how it can be deployed for your own life Enjoy. So I want you to see it, I want you to hold it, and I want you to enjoy it. I don't know what my headings would be, but maybe see, hold, enjoy. So first, I want you to see the map, just visually with your eyes. Look at it, look at it with your eyes, look at the pages there, survey what's here. With a Bible open, you can scan this map for a few moments. I think there's first given to us a title. There's a title here, look at verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. These are the generations. is singled out in the book of Genesis as almost a new chapter title. There are ten of these across the book of Genesis. So every time something jumps out at you and it says, these are the generations of so-and-so, that's starting like a major new section. So this is another major section. We have this chapter title for our benefit. So this is the beginning of something new, and it's focused now not on Noah as it previously was, I think in chapter 7, But now it's focused on his son. It zooms in on his son. So notice the title, but then notice all these names listed. This reads somewhat like a genealogy, but not a normal genealogy. Instead of listing all the male offspring, it doesn't just have grandpa, dad, son. Here you've got names. You've got cities. You've got tribes. You've got names of kingdoms. You've got names of tribes. So that that helps portray it as, as a map. You would look at it on a particular part of the world, and all these names are now living in uh, geographical locations. There's one up in the northeast, one in the southwest. So it's describing this expanse over a nap. But I also want you to notice the numbers. There are 70 names here, which is why when we had the word read to us earlier, it would have been punishment for me to have Mickey read all of those 70 names. That would have been the worst day to be chosen to read the Bible in front of everyone else. But there are 70 names here. And the author of Genesis uses these numbers in a special way. You remember, even in the beginning, chapter 1, there there were particular numbers that were meant to emphasize stuff. We have 70 here. 70, obviously, this isn't math camp, but it's 7 times 10. 7 is the number for completeness. We see that all over the scriptures. 10 is the number for totality. So if someone says, I have a really big army, they'll say, I have 10,000 times 10,000 people in this army. What does that mean? It means a super big army. So here we have complete and total. It's being shown to us from that. It's meant to convey completeness and totality of this map that we've been given. This is a map from Moses' perspective of the entire world. And so we, we've zoomed in on, Moses's, or on Noah's sons, but Moses is trying to describe through his sons reaches the ends of the earth. But then we've got some translating to do. You look at these names and you go, I have never heard that on CNN. I've never heard of these places or these things. And we have people who are historians or ethnographers who can 
trace these back where they would say, you know, the, the land of Shinar in verse 10, that's actually in modern day Iraq. Or Cush in verse 9, that's in present day Sudan. Or Javan is actually where Greece is. Gomer, verse 2, it stretches all the way up to Russia and even in present day Ukraine. And Canaan, this is, a, this is where the present day Israel political nation would be for us. Now, the point of this is not just so that Moses is really flexing on how much he knows of the world, but the point of this is he's showing that the sons of Noah have spread out. How far have they spread in the world? This recreated humanity almost, how how far have they spread? It goes as far east as Greece, as far south as North Africa, as far west covering the Abrian, uh, Arabian, wow, Arabian Peninsula, And it goes as far north even to Russia because you can't just have a map without showing the boundaries here. And what Moses is trying to say is this map is everywhere. Now, let me just point a couple of things out uh, here so you can kind of understand how this map is laid out. Canaan sits in the center, so geographically the center of the map. That's ground zero of what Moses wants to emphasize with this map because it's the promised land of what would be told later to the Israelites present-day Israel, but then occupied by these cursed people, the Canaanites, a wicked people. But second, with Canaan at the center, you see that there are three sons of Noah, and they've all spread out in different locations. Ham goes southwest into North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, part of present-day Yemen. Shem goes southeast into the Arabian uh, area, so present-day Saudi Arabia or Iraq. Japheth goes far north, spanning much of what we would think of Europe, parts of Russia, east all the way to Greece and the west. You'd, you'd, be, you'd find the far reaches of the known world from the understanding of the center being where the Canaanites are. Now, so I just want you to survey that. I want you to care. I want you to memorize everything I just said. But you kind of surveyed the map much like you would go to into a national forest or something. You're hiking. You want to go, okay, where are the mountains? Where's the river? Where's all this stuff? But now you're holding this map and you want to use it. How do you use a map? You use a map according to its own key, right? What is a river? What is a road? What is a peak? What is a valley? And this map, secondly, I want you to hold this map practically with your hands and survey the key of this map. So you've already looked at it. Now I want you to zoom in on it. This map has a key. And it was given to us in the last chapter from the mouth of Noah, Genesis chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, both a blessing and a curse. That's actually the key to this map. So we're, we need to understand the vastness of this map through the lens with a key of there's some that will be blessed and then some that will be cursed. That's how we need to look at this map. All right, so in chapter 9, post-flood, Noah, you heard last week, got intoxicated, drunk, passed out, and his son Ham dishonored him. And his other two sons, Shem and Japheth, honored him. So you got one son doing a bad thing, two sons doing the honorable thing. And when Noah woke up, What did he do? We see in verses 24 through 27, he cursed one and honored the other, prophesied about the other. It says he cursed, the one lineage would be cursed by Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, he shall be to his brothers. And this is the third curse given to us in the scriptures. One was land, one was a person, and then here we've got this third cursing. So when you think of a curse, you and I might think of a lot of different things, but when, I, when you hear a curse in the scriptures, I want you to think of it through the lens of an enemy of God, an absence of God's blessing and life on them, damnation as it appears in people's lives. And it seems like Genesis is creating a line here from the first person to receive the curse, which was Satan, 
first thing to receive the curse, which was Satan. He's creating. Moses is drawing us a line. Now is going through the very people of Ham. Israel's greatest enemy, you'll see in the book of Genesis and later on in the scriptures, are the Canaanites. It's even announced here in verse 6. Israel's three great foes in the entire Old Testament are, are also dynamically through this line, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Ninevites, also known as the Assyrians. You see that in verses 6, 10, and 11. And the great mysterious, you zoom in on, on verse 9. <laughs> I know, man, please follow. On verse 9, look at the text there. It has this amazing name, Nimrod. Nimrod, the first mighty man on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It says there in that text. It's hard to say who exactly Nimrod is. I, I wouldn't measure you should draw him or try to figure out. But here we can piece together who Moses is trying to point to us as being Nimrod. He was a, he was a great empire builder. See that in verses 10 through 12. Provides quite the resume of someone who built all these cities and civilizations. It was built, you could almost think, like on his back, under the influence of a curse. All the evil in the world at this time was through the man of Nimrod. He was also understood to be vicious. It says there in the text that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it alludes to him to being a hunter of men. He was wicked. Look at the text there. It says that he built, that things were built off of his three letters in his Hebrew name, which means rebel. You have to translate that. So this is, this is the curse line. This is a terrifying bunch of people here in the text. Let Canaan be his servant, though. Noah prophesied not only would, through one line of this genealogy, would come a people who would be cursed, but it also says, mysteriously, that they would actually be the servants of others. So how can it be total and wickedness, but also serve others? Second thing I want you to see in the second point, Shem here receives a blessing. You saw that in chapter 9, Shem receives a blessing. It said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And when you think of blessing, I don't want you to think about how you and I talk about blessing today. Blessings to us are like practical gifts, you know, getting out of sickness, going home early from work, blessed about that. Our church is growing, oh, what a blessing. I bought this new microwave, oh, I'm so blessed. I can heat up soup so quickly. These are all the things that you and I talk about as blessings. When the Bible talks about blessings, it means that people in particular have received God's favor, that they've been given new life, that they've been given true hope, or that they've even been impressed within their heart to be given salvation. That's what it means to be blessed in the, in the scriptural language. So keep your eyes on the map. You've got two groups of people, cursing and blessed. It's not blessing how you and I think, but they have God's favor shining on them. And we have it in particular through the person of Eber, verse 21. <laughs> I keep listing more things, and I'm like, good luck to us. But here, we will drive at something in particular. Eber is not the firstborn son that we see from this offspring. You can see in verse 24, Eber is actually way down the line. But Moses mentions Eber first because Eber means Hebrews. And from this line of Shem comes the Hebrews or the Israelites, the very people of God receiving particular favor as they stretch out. The, the third kid from Noah is Japheth. So we have Ham. Um, and then finally we have Japheth. Verse 27 of the previous chapter, chapter 9, it says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. Somehow Japheth gets blessed too, but he gets blessed not like Shem, but he's blessed if he participates uh, in the activities of Shem. So in many ways, if he's brought into the encampment or if he takes refuge into the encampment, 
So he's blessed, but he's blessed as long as he hangs out with his brother. It's almost like Noah would look at his three sons and say, Ham, you're cursed. Shem, you're blessed. And Japheth, stick with your brother. That's, that's the key to our map. So see it surveyed, all the things there. See the mountains, the hills, the valleys. But also use the key, Shem, the Semitic people, including the Israelites, Ham, Israel's enemies, and then Japheth. You could think of them, and they were. You don't even have to think about it. They were. They were faraway people. They would have been in Europe today. And in the New Testament, they would be described as those who are called Gentiles. So you've got God's people, God's enemies, and then these random bunch of Gentiles over here who are supposed to participate with Shem. All right, finally, let's use the map, right? So we got this map. We understand it's key, but I want you to use it. Think, think theologically here. Think with your heart why this map what is Moses doing? Why did he start, stop with these cool stories? And he's about to go into other cool stories, but then he gives us what feels like a table of contents, even though we're used to going over the table of contents. What's the message here in this? How can we decipher what God is doing through this spirit-inspired word? What is the message that it's trying to preach to us? So I'm going to give you this in three words. So this is where point three this is my final point. It will last the longest, and it has three parts to make it more confusing on you. Would you write down the word from, through, and to? That's how this map is going to preach to us, how it's going to preach through me. From, through, and who? And what it's going to show is that all will come from one, all will go through one, and then one will then in turn go to all. So let me talk all from one here in a moment. What is this map showing us? In simplicity, this map is showing you through 70 nations... The entire world comes from Noah, God's man Noah. Remember, it was Noah who was saved, his family was protected, and then what were they to do? Go populate the earth. All actually come from one, all from one, all from Noah. Now, why does that matter? I want you to think how this message collides with history, from ancient history to the present day. Ancient history, all these nations have their different gods, their own stories, how their God formed them, what their God is telling them to do. There, there are all these categories of different gods and different ways to live. And what Moses is saying is, no, there is not multiple gods. You don't have your option of who God is and what you're told to do. You all came from one. And there is a creator God. And he doesn't go by many names. He isn't to be worshipped differently based on your opinion. You're worshipping false gods. You're either worshipping the one true God or others that are made up. The, the one God is Noah's God, Yahweh, the God of the flood, the God of deliverance. Now, you think about that, so that's ancient history, but then let's talk about present day. Doesn't that sound very familiar? Or let's, let's zone in even a little bit more. You know, right now there's obviously a lot of discord and yelling about things that are racial or gender or even cultural issues. If you really want to be awkward at the office, what do you do? You bring up race, you bring up gender, you bring up how different cultures act in different ways. One way of capturing what's happening in present day moment over these issues is by highlighting everyone's differences. Well, I think about this different, or that's marriage to me, or maybe you're just different because you look different or act different or you're tall or you're short. We highlight differences and then fighting about what to do with those differences. Do we treat everyone the same? Do we make more distinctions? Do we elevate one and penalize the other? We've, we've turned up the volume, if you will, really loud on differences, 
and everybody's fighting about what to do with those, but the opposite is given to us right in the table of contents. And what is that message? There's one God, and the rest of you are sinful. The opposite view of people is portrayed in the Bible. Differences are real. And we'll go into that with the Tower of Babel next week. There are different languages. There are different backgrounds. There are different cultures. There are different upbringings. And we shouldn't pretend that they're not there. And we should know them and genuinely, I think, enjoy different people's differences. But what Genesis 10, I believe, would have you actually turn up the volume a lot louder on is actually what we share in common. And I don't mean like this hippie, feely, like, oh, look, look how we're all alike. No, it's, it's actually way more damning than that. You know what you and I have in common? The damnation of our soul before a holy God. Okay, now we, now we want to think about how that can be resolved, if that's what we have in common, if we do have an enemy, and if we do have a friend. I understand that we use things like race or gender or culture in a certain technical way in our day, and that's fine. I'm not qualified to t- change those definitions, but... There's a sense in which the Bible is saying, there's not a sense, in reality, the Bible is saying, this map is saying, we all are one race. We're all from Noah, which means, sorry, we're all fallen, which means we all share the same amount of trouble, which means we all have, hopefully, the same amount of hope that is provided by the one who made it all. So all come from one. We should recognize our likeness. That's what you ought to see when you look at this major map, is that all of these people are actually the same, yet what is happening differently within them? Okay, so that's all from one. Second, all are through one. All through one. The blessing will come to all through one. Remember blessing and curses? The blessing will come to all through one. Remember this map? It's about blessing and who gets that blessing. Now, why should you care about that blessing? Some of you are here and you're like, Asher, uh, good for Shem, poor for Canaan, but I've never met them. I don't think I'm related to them. I don't care. But, and I get it. But remember, that blessing is about forgiveness. That blessing is about God's favor. That, that blessing is about salvation. So you ought to look at that and go, okay, what makes these people saved and these people not saved? What, what? causes them to be blessed and not blessed. Who in here doesn't want to be saved like these people in this text? So Genesis is all about locating that blessing, locating that salvation, and it will appear, and then it will not be fulfilled through particular people. It'll appear through Seth, not Cain. It'll appear through Shem, not Ham or Japheth. It'll appear later through Isaac or through Uh, Abraham and through Jacob, not Esau. And it barrels and gets off track and seems like it dies and then reappears and then keeps barreling on. And then all of a sudden it winds up in Bethlehem to a child of the line of Seth, of Shem, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, all in the line of Judah. He has the blessing that he gives and he is the blessing. It, It says in John chapter one that Uh, In him was life, and life was the light of the world. And he came in order to give that blessing to all. John chapter 11 says, And Jesus said to her and to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet he shall live. So you have two things happening. One, you're, you're tracing this line of blessing through particular people, but then you're understanding that it's not just being passed down like you might give, uh, like you might give something after you pass away. What are those called? An heirloom. You know, it's not, this blessing isn't just an heirloom that is being handed down through generations, 
but actually it will appear, and it will appear not as something that is given, but it will appear as a person. He is the one who is a blessing. He is the one who has a blessing. He is the one who actually, amazingly, becomes a curse so that he can be a blessing by dying on a cross, and then he rises from the dead that he might give this blessing to all who believe. That blessing comes through one. That's it. He's it. All are blessed only in and only through him. So secondly, all through one. First, all from one. But then third and finally, one to all. One blessing goes out to the nations. I can't wait to get to... I've been dying to get to this part within the sermon. I know we had a lot of names and technical stuff and whatever, and all that informs the foundation of this. Can't wait to tell you because this map, if you will, is about to become really electric. Remember the names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember the areas, Palestine, North Africa, Arabia, and Europe. Remember the, the people groups, God's people, God's enemies, and this random group of faraway Gentiles. And through this, I want to tell you, two stories. It is like using a table of contents to reorient your way as you get through the map. It is like some of us, if I were to say, open up to the book of Isaiah, you would go, I don't know where that is. And your friend goes, I don't know where that is. But you use the table of contents. We, we will navigate the beauty of the gospel through two particular stories because of this seemingly boring list of places and people. I want to tell you two things. First, the apostle Paul, a Shemite, born in Tarsus, present-day Turkey. He persecuted Christians. Sounds like an enemy of God, doesn't it? But then he encountered Jesus, and that changed everything about his life. Now, around year 50 AD, Paul took this really long journey. He started in Israel, center of the map, but then he went north, traveled through Europe, and he made his way all the way to Greece, where he stood in the capital of Greece, Athens. He was in Japheth's territory now, the land of Javan father of the Mediterranean peoples. And he, there he found a city full of idols. Even though everyone there was spiritual, they worshiped everything. They had even had a statue called to an unknown God. And to them, what did this now turned believer in Christ do? He preached Christ. He told them that God had a name and God had a son. And there's just one way to receive God's blessing. See how that's kind of not kind of, how that's inspired from the gravity of this text. And to them, he preached this Christ, and many Greeks there believed, not just in Athens, but in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, in Ephesus, all over Greece. Churches just began to pop up over the Mediterranean. It was, it was like the Gentiles were believing, where the sons of Japheth were coming into the tent of Shem. See, isn't this great, this glory of God being bestowed to us? One more, maybe the best of all, not to downplay Paul. A a little bit earlier in time, but a little more distant in terms of barriers crossed. 20 years earlier, about 30 AD, the man who was known as a deacon, Deacon Philip, he was also a Shemite, born in Galilee, present-day Israel, in Moses' day, Canaan, the promised land. Philip was hanging out in Jerusalem. He was preaching the gospel with his friends and fellow Israelites, when an angel met him and told him, go south to Gaza. This is, this is desert land, absolutely in the middle of nowhere. This is not a vacation place where you'd want to go. It was on the edge of Egypt, ah, and Hamite territory. Philip went out, out into the middle of the desert. And on his journey, he found a man 
in a royal chariot. Maybe he thought this was a mirage. Nevertheless, he goes up to it, but the spirit spoke to Philip and told him to go into the chariot. It was real. He got into the chariot. He even hitched a ride. And entering into that chariot, Philip found a robed man who was reading a scroll. And Philip asked him what he was reading. And you remember what he was reading. That man said that he was reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 in particular, to the exact account of the prophecy of the suffering servant who would later die on behalf of God's people. Philip asked the man if he understood this. Do you know what you're reading? And the man said, I have no idea. Who in the world could understand this? And then Philip told the man he was reading about the very person of Jesus, that suffering servant who people later recognized and gave themselves over to, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Philip explained the entire Bible, it says, to this man from the case of Isaiah 53. So surely he took him to Genesis, where I dare say he probably talked to him from the table of nations. And this man believed Philip and then believed in Jesus. And they saw some water off in the distance in the desert where Philip would baptize him there. Now, it's also important to understand that this man in the chariot was Ethiopian. He was a Cushite from Ham. He would have worked in the royal courts in the Cushite empire. He was, he was by design an enemy of Israel and an enemy of God. He was living out the curse that was bestowed on his forefathers. But not anymore. Now he was a child of God because of that one blessing which came to Shem, showing itself for all people, all from one, all through one. And then later with that message, all of this one went to all. The one blessing goes to all the nations because all the nations belong to Christ. That map and all those people this is, what, this is what Moses, through our New Testament lens, is showing us that map in all these people. What are we to think of? All of them belong to Christ. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who made everyone and everything. And he says, all of it is mine. They might disagree with him and rebel and act throughout this curse, but they're still his. That map, these people, they all belong to Christ. He made them. He came and died for them. And one helpful thing that has been given to us in modern-day missions and evangelism is this organization called the Joshua Project. And the Joshua Project tries to identify and highlight different people groups in the world. And, and they estimate that there are more than 17,000 people groups. Th this table of contents has 70. Think about it. There are, there are more than 17,000 people groups where they share their own language and they share their own culture. And 7,500 of them are considered to be unreached meaning they have no significant access to the gospel. And just because it happened yesterday, I'm going to highlight it now. You may not know that there is actually one city in the state of Oklahoma who is actually recognized as an unreached people group, where the population of Christians in that town are fewer than 2%. And I just want to say today, after Saturday, that town is Norman, Oklahoma. Now, <laughs> I... We must pray for them. <laughs> but you think about that map that we have in Genesis chapter 10. And in many ways, it's expanded today. Where there are 70. Now, if, there are, if they are right, and there are 17,000 people groups. And if this room were to represent the world, those who would be sitting, sitting on this side, 60% of the room, we'll say, would have zero access to the gospel. 
Think of it. The world given to us in Genesis 10. Yet how does this happen? Just sit in a moment for what this map, this table of contents is about to unfold for the rest of us. Describing things like hell and heaven. Describing things like joy and salvation. Hope for those who are far away and lost. Showing people that the real problem that they have is not external, but actually internal. That they actually need someone who is external from them in order to come in and save them. What this map is showing, that there is a blessing that will come from all the nations. And at the end of history, we have the account in the book of Revelation where a lamb will reign upon a throne. And everyone will be able to see him. And all around that throne, all around that throne will be representatives from all of these 17 thousand plus people groups coming from the Shemites, the Japhethites, the Hamites, coming from the person of Noah. Now to conclude, I, I want you to see Moses' list of all these offspring and people and nations and that they drive to an ultimate point. Don't just see them as a pile, as a collection of randomized, dusty maps and stuff. This table of contents is actually given to us to show us what the mission of God is actually like. That to the ends of the earth, not only does he own everything, but his glory will be brought to him. That through a person, and previously a people, and a group, a person would be delivered. And that person's purpose would to go out to the ends of the earth in order to save the earth. So this should cause us, more than anything, to, to enter onto the land from the flood that we just encountered. And scan around and look. Look at what's out there. Look at who's far away and look at who's near. We should pray for ourselves and for those people. We should believe and we should call other people to believe. We should send our friends or family or even us to the ends of the earth in order to give them the very message that came to these various people that I just gave you an account of. Or maybe you should even go. We should pray for more of that to happen and then Jesus will return or We'll die first, whichever comes first. Jesus will then have his reward from every nation, every single one. This is why maps are awesome. This is why the beginning of the book is just as glorious as the middle. It's why it's just as heightening an emotion as the end. Because from the beginning, the point is this, that we are recipients of not only God's grace, but we are also recipients of God's full work. It was him navigating through all of this. His spirits inspiring of every dot and tittle in the scriptures are given to us so that you and I can see the entirety of scripture, the pinnacle of his particular grace and mercy brought to us in the person of Christ. And we can have confidence in the object of our faith because of the very foundation given to us in his word about his glory, not from a pile of stuff, but from a table of nations, causing a great longing for an eternal kingdom filled with his goodness and righteousness and mercy to come back and make all things new. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in such a way that we can trust you. That we can trust you today because of how we've seen you act in the past. And may your faithfulness towards us be something we delight in, something that shapes us. And even this list of people and places cause us to magnify you. Stir our hearts, Lord, to bask in your glory, to worship you with our lives, to, to go, to talk, to seek, and to tell of your magnificence. We pray this in Jesus' name.